Hey friends, welcome to episode 5 of season 1 of the Bent Not Broken podcast. My name's Paul Shirley, and each time I do this, I'm I'm reminded of Matt Taibbi and Walter Kern's podcast. Do you listen to their intermittently okay. i like it though it's great but matt taibbi always starts it off and it sounds really natural and then he waits for walter kern to say and i'm walter kern and that's what i keep doing to you which oh, is not I very nice no it's cue. not very nice because like doesn't give you any you don't have any runway into it i'm jennifer say <laughs> how's your uh, so we're going to talk today about um one personal story of mine that that you're going to then ring in on. Uh, and then we're going to examine something that uh, is in the zeitgeist about resilience as applied to loneliness and mental health and all of that. But before any of that, I want to know, how's your how's your resilience this week? Scale of one to five. Hmm. I'm good. I'm like okay. a four point. Two five. Nice. Is that uh, <laughs> if you think back to a year ago, how does it compare? What month are we in? Oh, well, it's my. December. Oh, goodness. When we're recording this. So a year ago is when I was looking down the barrel of losing my job. Oh. I was like December. Mm -hmm. um, my boss, the CEO of Levi's was he had done a background check on me and my husband and I was waiting for the results. Have we talked about this? I, I mean, I don't know that you've told you. I Maybe, maybe you mentioned it, but it seems crazy to get background checked while you're under employ. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it was after a year and a half or more really of me being outspoken about schools and other restrictions to kids and a year and a half or more, almost two years of them telling me I should stop and me saying, no, thank you. And then he sort of held out, well, you could be the CEO if you stop. And I was like, it's too late for me. Screen grabs live forever. Um, and he said, well, let's do a background check. I think now that I think about it, it was a way to try to get me. Well, actually, what I really think it was, was he knew that it was done, but he needed something oh. like a piece of paper to say, here's why it's done. And but he positioned it as if you know this is standard operating procedure to be CEO, so we need to do a background check because I was uh, in contention supposedly. Mm -hmm. But we need to throw your husband in too. We're going to do that. So I think it's probably not unusual to do a background check for somebody who's going to be CEO, at least so you're prepared for any skeletons that might you know come mm -hmm. out. I do think it's sort of weird to do it on the spouse, but you know my husband was pretty <laughs> assertive on social media and. Anyway, so he had asked to do that in October. In December, I was waiting still mm. for the results. And I knew it was done. And I knew he did not want to have a conversation with me because he's mm. sort of conflict avoidant. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was dealing with. So I was like sort of mentally preparing myself to be told what mm. I knew I would be told, which is – Sorry, you gotta go. So was your so your stress level was high. Very high. Do you high. feel like your resilience was maintained or had you kind of been worn down at that point? Such a good question. I don't know that I can tease it apart. I was mm. so exhausted. I mean, the battle internally was so fraught. And I it was like all I could do every day to collect myself and do the work and deal with whatever call I had to field, which was, hey Jen, you don't you probably don't want to say that, or can you not? tweet that um i think i was just a zombie yeah, so i guess you, i was resilient because i kept going i mean i got up every day sat at the computer and sat there for nine hours on zoom to do my work is that resilient it does seem or like dead inside it does seem like we can build up this carapace is that how you say that word of resilience when underneath it's starting to fall apart. That's a but good way to there's there's kind of this outer shell that we That's we've a good built. way to put it. Yeah. Like I I think I presented as fine mm -hmm. but was probably fraying at the yeah. seams. But I'm good at <laughs> pulling it together and presenting as fine and showing up every day and doing the deal. So I was waiting for the call, which I got in early January, which mm -hmm. went as expected. Mm -hmm. When they do a background check typically is that not for criminal activity? So it was told I it was I was told it would be criminal activity, any sort of financial entanglements that might compromise you. Oh. Like 
I don't know, maybe I'm invested in some textile company that I'm going to want to try to make Levi or I don't know, or something. Or you have some weird uh, investment that where they could get leverage on you because something where, yeah, yeah, that I could be compromised in some way. So I, and then social media. And I said, I've not committed a crime. I have no, my finances are pretty basic, mm-hmm. but you're going to find social media to be a gray area. It's not even going to be a clear cut thing. That's like, Oh God, she said that thing. She mm-hmm. said the N word. <laughs> like right. you're never going to find anything like that, but you're going to find that the response to some of what I've said in the year and a half, last year and a half is intolerable to you mm-hmm. and that you're not going to want to risk it, which is what happened. I think I never saw the report. They never showed it to me, but you can surmise what was on it. Yeah. I, and, well, I'll tell you this, Paul. When I wrote my book, I went back over my tweet stream for mm. year. I mean, not everyone, but like, there. I was like, why were people mad? This yeah. is all so. I'm very nice. I'm diplomatic. I say things that make sense with data, and it's interesting as I've been doing because one of the things that has me a little tired out in the last few weeks is I've been doing a ton of press interviews for my book and. In the last two weeks, the que- the question I get or the comment I get most frequently is, I don't really get it. Opening schools wasn't controversial. I'm like, girl. <laughs> yeah, totally. I can imagine that. Let me take you back to what San Francisco for all of 2020 and 21. And, and the amnesia kind of is astonishing and annoying to me because it's like, what? You didn't even do anything. You're so, you know, mm. you're not even that brave is sort of the implication. And it's like not quite getting how yeah, that reminds oppressive. me it, it is similar to i think what has happened with regard to the quote twitter files right where so the big revelation is the fbi is colluding with a private company to suppress certain kinds of speech which is a really big deal but people are saying but we knew that was happening and you're like how did you you knew but no you didn't you just Guess that, right? <laughs> so here's a fun story from the last week. So you know, Kara Swisher is the uh, tech reporter for the New York Times. And oh, I thought there was a, like an athlete named Kara Swisher, but go ahead. She's a reporter, mm. tech reporter. She does other stuff now too, but kind of made her name in tech. She now works yeah. for the New York Times. She has a podcast that I don't know the name of. Anyway, she, you know, she's in the Twitter files are a big nothing burger kind of thing. So I posted screen grabs, one from a year and a half or so ago, where she said, this is ridiculous. Twitter's not suppressing speech of conservatives. You are, you know, you right wingers are high kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Juxtaposed with what she said of late about the Twitter files, which is, we knew they were doing this. You know, yeah. what's the big deal? What do you, you know? And, and I wrote some comment like, um, why do you let them off the hook? Why are you letting them off the hook? Did They didn't do it. They did it. And it's fine. Which is it? Mm-hmm. Guess what happened? Tell me. Blocked oh, immediately. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut. Yeah. And so I think it's it's similar in that you're, you're right. Viewed through a rational lens, it isn't a big deal. It shouldn't have even have been a big deal at the time. But people's response was rather vehement, to say the least. Uh, so it was a big deal. Um, it I, was a huge deal. It shouldn't have been controversial. But it's only in hindsight that people are saying it shouldn't have been controversial. Right. It was radical, uh, yeah. at least in very left-leaning cities. Mm-hmm. And you were the devil for right. saying it. I right. mean, literally you were like this evil, horrible person who just wanted all the black children and teachers to die. So it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right. It is the same sort of impetus and sort of post facto rationalization for mm-hmm. everyone to be like, so what? So they colluded with the government to censor anyone who challenged the democratic party. I don't see what the big deal is. <laughs> yeah. Which I think has been part of the feeling to me of gaslighting that works really well because partially because of my small town upbringing where I tended to trust authority figures. And Mm. so sometimes I do feel a little crazy because I think to myself when I was a kid and Iran Contra was happening, for example, right where there was all this chaos happening behind the scenes, it was the subject of congressional hearings and they almost took down an entire government. Right. And, Yet now there are these 
almost like monthly revelations about what's happening in government that seem kind of on the same level, but everybody keeps saying, no, that's not a big deal. And it makes my head hurt. <laughs> yeah, it can make you feel sort of crazy. But that's kind of how I felt when I was like, hey, guys, maybe we should open the schools. And people are like, you're a Nazi and a QAnon. Where's your hood? <laughs> I was like, I just said, hey, maybe we should think about the fact that poor kids should have the same thing that the rich kids have. Mm -hmm. Didn't I thought you just said you cared about equality. Right, I thought you were. Uh, <laughs> and you feel crazy. I mean, that's why I was sort of unraveling in December of 21, because mm -hmm. It's like in a horror movie when the main character sees the ghost or the dead body walking around and everybody's like, what? Everything's fine. And she's like, no, I see it. That's yeah. how I felt for two years. Yeah, which I think we're going to come back to here <laughs> shortly, actually. Uh, How's your our, resilience? How my, are you feeling? Mine is um, – it's – feels bipolar. Some days it is high and I'm optimistic and it feels like I've built up a store of resilience. And then other days I'm uh, fighting it. Uh, and and one of those days is the day we're going to talk about here shortly. Through the, the lens of self-soothing, that's what I thought would be interesting about this miniature story. Story is, is the following. I went to... Um, a meeting, kind of a pitch for what we're doing with businesses. Before that, sat down at this coffee shop, saw this girl that I kind of had a crush on, found out she had a boyfriend. That was mark number one against my day. Second mark against my day is during the pitch meeting, it turned out that the guy, he turned to me, he's like, this all sounds great. Who could I introduce you to at other companies? And I was like, oh God, I thought we were talking about doing it for your company, which is an internal switch of gears that was unpleasant. Then I get to a coffee shop near my house and find out that somebody has gotten into our Facebook ad accounts and created a spam ad in either Vietnam or Cambodia to the tune of $1,000 a day, which has already been charged to our credit card, which is the most panicky feeling because you're not sure what to do about it, right? So then, of course, I get online. I'm trying to, like, contact Facebook, and they're not responding, and it's chaos. And we're also at this time in the business where we just don't have any wiggle, wiggle room. It's just not a time for this. Things are working pretty well towards the future, but we don't have a bunch of cash laying around that I can just send to somebody in Vietnam. Not that you ever, ever want really want to. Right. And that was followed up by another kind of business meeting where it just didn't go great, right? So it was a day of just cascading things going wrong. I hate those. And the it was also annoying that with Facebook, I was like trying to figure out like, how can I get somebody to talk to me? This $330 billion company has no customer service. Additionally, during the day and unrelated, our website had gone down and I don't know why I don't think it was related, but I was able to get like GoDaddy, which is the host of the website on the phone in five minutes right. and talk to them and talk and it through. It. Right. And so that only kind of made the situation with Facebook seem worse because I'm like, GoDaddy is not the company that Facebook is yet. I can just call them. By the way, this That's has why. been a week. Yeah. And I still have not heard anything from Facebook. I was able to like cancel the credit card and whatever. Point of the story though is that at the end of that day, I was ready to like move to the woods. Uh, like just it's been a it's Too been a hard. long couple yeah. of years anyway and so you hit those certain days where it's a fight. And what I thought was interesting was that I was able to recover so well by the next morning which I credit to my sports past, and I think you may be able to relate in that in sports, the stakes seem really high and the losses are really catastrophic. And you have to teach yourself how to self-soothe, which is a word that I only became familiar with in the last five years, I would say. But the ability to take in this sensation of just complete despondence process it and then move on the next day, which I never feel like is going to happen. I'm always like, nope, this is it. I'm not going to be able to come back from this. But it is kind of remarkable that I'm able to do that, which is not a credit to any personal resilience I have other than what was trained 
in me through sports. But do you do something specific or do you say, I'm going to let this go, I'm going to go to bed, and then you just feel better the next day? Like, it's, what do you yeah, do? Yeah, it is an actual, for me, it's a progression of usually it involves like loud metal music helps me a lot. That or, would not help me, but good, good. But so, and then there are several things that I can use. And it's not, this is not to say that I always remember these or that I do them well, but writing about it helps talking to talking it out obviously helps calling my mom or calling up my brother or somebody, um, having a drink with a friend. But I guess what I'm excited to share with people is that this is possible. I just think that a lot of times we allow people to not allow, but people aren't aware that it's natural that we all go through this, right? These yeah. kind of these big ups and downs. I wish I had a, a day. I won't go into any of the details where I felt similarly last week. Mm. Um, my, I was physically not feeling well at all. Mm-hmm. Have had a bad cold, but I have arthritis and it was really painful that day and pain can wear on you. Oh yeah. And then a couple sort of similarly frustrating. And I, I sort of felt the same, And then I also noted that I felt so much better the next day. It was like, oh, my God, I'm over all of this. I'm done. I'm not doing this. And then you wake up and you're like, oh, I can do this. But what I wish I could do better is not get to that point where I feel so worn down by it. Mm. Like to keep in my mind, you'll feel better tomorrow. You don't have to feel this bad. Yeah. But I can't. But maybe it's not possible. I don't know. Like I I had that thought to myself. Like the next day I felt so much better. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why did I let myself get so upset and tired and down and you know i could have just walked away and i mean i had some self-soothing things i did just kind of walk away i took a very long walk Mm -hmm. um that for me really helps like go take a 90 minute walk walk five miles six miles until it's like pounded out of your head (laughs) yeah um well i wonder i guess this is maybe what i wonder about this is if the magnitude of how bad we feel about it is actually what allows us to recover more quickly. Oh, that's interesting. If we are, it's so dark that we almost can't see that that's a possibility that does that actually help in the speed at which we recover? I don't don't know. know. I don't either. And we need to, uh, phantom psychologist who's sitting here. Could you tell us what's going on? But I I mean, I think it's not, I, I think for me mentally, it's not possible to stay feeling that angry, frustrated, sad, whatever. Like mm-hmm. I don't want to be that way in my life. I've had extended periods where I lived for long periods feeling that way. And so, I, you know, and I, I, I don't want to give up and I don't want to. So that kind of kicks in at a certain point and mm-hmm. you just kind of lift back up. I spend time with my kids. I spend time with my husband and you're like, oh, suddenly that problem isn't so bad. Right, right. I don't know. I don't let myself stay there very long. I, I don't know if I don't let myself or I just don't. I spring back well, so much more quickly. I think that's what I'm interested in knowing is did you as a gymnast – I would imagine there must have been some really dark post-meet time periods because especially because in your world it was so individualized. In basketball, you can you can always a little bit fall back on like, well, there were other people involved. <laughs> so Oh yeah, there's no one else. Yeah, try right. breaking your femur on the last event of world championships. That's a pretty dark ending. Right. So so as you look back, did you coach yourself in that or was that something that was coached for you or how did that skill set develop? I, I honestly don't know, but I will tell you when I was younger and even now it's my impulse is to kind of work through that stuff, meaning not like do the work in that kind of stupid way that people say, but like literally just sit down and do more work until Mm. I feel better. Like that's one of my self-soothing. So break your leg at world championships, get the cast, come back home and go to the gym, Mm. go to the gym. They're telling you, you can't come back. I'll show you. I'm going to come back. I'm going to work out in a cast for five months. Um, I'm going to do bars and a full leg cast, (laughs) which is what I did. Mm. Um, And that's my sort of, go to now and it does kind of work because in a way it clears your mind to the work Mm -hmm. i'll write something i'll um 
But now I also have learned that sometimes just walking away, mm. getting some exercise, playing with my kids. But my my typical way of doing it is just grind it out and work through it. And I'm not sure that's the best. Yeah. My, <laughs> my response in my younger sports days was, okay, well, now I'll just go shoot a hundred free throws to make right. up for the one that I missed or, or I'll run myself ragged. Um, I do think that in basketball in particular, it was helpful that you were, or that I was often so tired that that wasn't an option because I'm, I mean, all sports are tiring. Basketball is a level of fatigue that is pretty hard to replicate. And so I think the full collapse of your body is really helpful for that self-soothing <laughs> because you just don't have any other option. You. Yeah, you're just, yeah. You're just unable to move and you hurt so much from – you get hit so much in basketball that you're also just beat up. And so I think I have – my routine around any kind of self-soothing involves – truly like a cocooning, like a, uh, an almost wrapping myself or a hibernation that has carried over and makes a lot of sense for me. But I don't think I would have f- figured that out if I had spent my whole life in a, in the knowledge economy, you know, it was, yeah. I needed to be so tired that I had no other option. Yeah. I don't know if that's great. <laughs> um, oh, I don't I know mean, if it's now, great that, now that I, I think back, I think, a an off repeated refrain in my life, not just it started probably in gymnastics, but then I started to repeat it to myself as mm. I got into the business world even was. So gymnastics is subjective. Obviously, there's judging. And and so if you're on a favored team, you might get a higher score or you might, you know, the judge might go, well, I'm not going to take the full five tenths for that, whatever. Mm. Um, I was never on a favored team. I was never sort of one of the favored athletes, you know. And so it was oft repeated, you know, you'd go and you'd perform really well and maybe you were fourth instead of second, which is what you think you deserved and your coaches think. And so what was always said to us, well, you just have to be that much better than everybody else. You're not from Carolis. Mm-hmm. You have to be that much better so that you do win. And so that was come home and work harder. Mm. Broken ankle, just come home and work harder. I have to be better than that other one. And so at work, coming up as a woman in corporate America, this was something that was also said quite mm. often, whether it was from, you know, the one lone female executive. Mm-hmm. But it, there was there was truth to it. I mean, there are all kinds of studies that show that men are promoted into potential and women are promoted five years after they've mastered the job. Mm. And so that was my driving force. You just have to be better. And I think that's why my go-to is to just then keep working. If mm. it's bad and it's not going how I want, I'm just going to keep working. And that has not always been healthy for me. And yeah. finally, in my 50s, I'm sort of <laughs> learning that maybe – Walking away for a second is good. What did you see with people, say, 15 years younger than you um, that maybe didn't have a sports background at Levi's? How did they deal with a bad day? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I... It is. I mean, it's a theme that we've been discussing, and I don't want to by any stretch say that all young people, all millennials and all Gen Zs are like this. But Mm -hmm. there is a real sort of concerning, I would say, willingness to walk away too soon, like at the slightest bit of frustration um, to think everything is just completely unfair. It's actually a theme in the book, like sure, not everything is fair. Keep working, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's part of the reason, you know, people hop around jobs a lot now. We know I was sort of a unicorn and that I didn't. I stayed in one place 23 years. Oh, it's crappy here. I'm just going to go to the next thing and I'm going to get a salary bump. And But you can't really outrun some of these challenges, right? Yeah. Every workplace is going to be fraught with challenges. There's always going to be a bad boss or a annoying coworker. There's no sort of nirvana as far as a corporate workplace, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people give up too soon, mostly. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I, I, I liken it a little bit to how in the world of college basketball in particular, there's this 
transfer portal that you may have heard of, I don't know, um, where players can really just move from year to year without any real penalty. It, when I played, you had to sit out a year if you transferred and it was a whole to-do. You had to get released and, and it was a lot, there's a lot more friction involved. And I will never forget my mentor of sorts, kind of father figure, Tim Floyd, who was my first coach at Iowa State and then went on to coach several other places, including the Bulls and the Hornets and USC. He stopped coaching pretty young in large part because he was so tired of dealing with parents, A, and B, this idea that you could just leave when things got difficult. Because one of the tasks as a coach is that you do have to push people. Like it just isn't, there's just no two ways about it. In order to get growth, you have to, you, you're going to put some obstacles in front of people, right? The simple answer or the simple version might be in practice, we're going to put seven defenders out there on the court so that it will seem easier when the game happens. And that's true of many things in sports, right? And it's also true in many things in life that we will make it more difficult such that it's easier for you when the shit hits the fan. And so it is easy for you and I to do the, well, the kids these days thing. Yeah. But and it I seems don't like mean to dismiss that. But I, I mean, that I think, but I, I would wonder if that's true, not just for the last 15 years, but for the last hundred years, right? I, I mean, look, there's always going to be people like that, but I do think, and we talked about this in one of our conversations, this culture of safetyism and parents of my generation, it's our fault, mm -hmm. who wanted to raise their children with these sort of frictionless, pain-free existences. And so, you know, any friction. I'm not even going to call it a challenge, but it's seen as sort of like this grave injustice by not everyone. I had amazing, hardworking young people on my team, but I, of course, screened for that sort of resilience. But I think I blame my generation. I blame Gen X parents. You know, we, if I were to sort of vastly overgeneralize, we were the first generation where our parents got divorced in massive numbers. We were latchkey kids. We felt abandoned and alone. And now we overparent our kids to within an inch of their lives. And part of that is making them make, making sure they never feel an ounce of discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And they come into the workplace like that. And every interaction that is challenging, every barrier, every tough coaching moment because you coach in the workplace is an injustice mm -hmm. for some, mm -hmm. not for all. Um, but look, look, there's people like that in my generation too. So I don't want to make it a strictly generational thing. It might be a personality type, but I think there's a greater preponderance mm -hmm. now with some younger people. But look, my generation is extremely flawed and well, vastly yeah. different ways. So. I think that if, if we, if we had interviewed somebody from the boomer generation about Jennifer, Jennifer X, no generation X 30 years ago, they probably would have said similar things. So I think throwing that all of that out, they would have said, well, we had to live through X, Y, or Z. I don't know. Um, I think throwing all of that out, I would say the larger point I would want to make is that if you're afraid of these, the detrimental effects of hardship or of obstacles, keep in mind that there is a way to train the bounce back, right? That, sure. that there is some value in teaching people or allowing people to learn on their own this ability to soothe themselves. Um, and that it's not, it, it's not even just that, because I think some people are scared of like, well, what would happen if my child were exposed to X obstacle? The answer is we figure it out most of, of the course. time. But right? if you aren't, then you don't figure it out. Exactly. And everything yeah. seems like this sort of horrible injustice. I mean, I think I was telling you recently, I just watched this film on Netflix about Xanax. Mm, it's mostly mm -hmm. about Xanax. It's about other prescription drugs as well. But there was an interesting part at the end where – Doctors who were a little more restrained about the prescribing of Xanax said the problem is even for a person that is more anxious than average, they need to learn resilience through managing that. And mm -hmm. the more of this pill that you take, the less resilient you become, mm -hmm. essentially. Similar to 
the evidence around nut allergies, for example, like people historically didn't have them, but by not exposing children to some of these things, it actually just keeps making it worse and worse and worse. And you remember how they discovered that discovered. (laughs) Oh, well, we started here in America saying, well, don't give children peanuts, peanut oil, nuts Mm. before whatever years of age, one or two years of age. Um, And then the nut allergies kind of Mm. took off and there was a study and children in Israel do not have the same degree of nut and peanut allergies. And there's a snack food in Israel. And I only knew of it because my husband grew up there that uses peanut oil. I think Mm. it's Bombas. I think that's what they're called. And so none of the kids have these allergies there. Yeah, that's yeah. And that's the it is in a way not to make it too topical, but it in a way it is immunizing yourself against hardship, right? Training yourself through some relatively meaningless events like sports or I I can remember camping as a kid in some situations where it wasn't ideal. It's cold outside. I'm uncomfortable. I can't sleep, but I got through it. I was able to figure out a way to kind of soothe myself. Um, And I'm forever grateful for that. I think that's the thing that we're seeing now is people weren't inoculated against hardship. Well, what you learn, first of all, it's okay to feel bad sometimes Mm -hmm. and -hmm. you learn that it's temporary. Right. Right. If you, that, because that's what makes it sort of impossible. That's when you feel really desperate, right? Is Mm -hmm. when you don't know when it's going to end and you think that you're relegated to living this way forever, or at least for me, that's when I've been in my lowest moments. Lo and behold, I even got through those. And so now in my 50s, when I have one of those days where I feel really, really bad, I'm not sort of sent reeling and I can remember that mm-hmm. I will feel better. And I do feel better much faster. I mean, I've spent years at a time being depressed. So <laughs> now I can recover in a day. And I, you know, having a bad day is different, obviously, than being depressed. And I know mm-hmm. uh, more significant interventions are required sometimes. But I think they're just like an acceptance that we feel bad sometimes and it will get better. It's right. okay. You don't get to feel good all the time. Mm-hmm. It It is very similar to the stages of grief, I would say, right. right? Like if you go through those enough times, you start to understand that there is a stepwise process and it's similar when hardship arises. I know that I'm going to go through these phases. I may not, like you were mentioning that idea of why can't I just remember that I'm going to feel better? Sometimes it doesn't even matter that you can remember that. It's just that you have to go through the phases That's and you're true. aware in the same way that we go through these certain rites of passage when somebody dies there's you know the irish have the wake or whatever and they're not sure why they do it they just use it to kind of move past these things yeah and i think that's i guess the the thing i'm seeing a lot is that people also not only are they not exposed to the the obstacle but they don't they aren't aware of coping mechanisms along the way yeah i mean they can't learn them or teach themselves them if they never had that if they never allowed the if if the people in their life never allowed for the obstacle or if mm-hmm. they removed themselves from life in such a way that right. they didn't encounter obstacles yeah i mean think about like there's the whole um participation trophy uh discussion right that has been going on now for 25 years but i think making the case to people that the point of sports is losing that the the big reason to play sports is to learn how to lose. <laughs> yeah, that is, and that, and to get up anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, um, that's it's interesting you say that. My son, who's eight, he loves soccer, mm. and he's told us now he doesn't want to play any other sports. He doesn't want to do baseball. Oh, um, he okay. doesn't want to do basketball. He just loves soccer. But he had a game over the weekend and they lost. And my husband came home and he was so happy that they lost because <laughs> oh, he was nice. like, "This is what the learning is about," mm, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. My son was, he was, he was bummed, but then he was fine a few hours later. Like you could tell he was a little down. He didn't really know how to articulate it. Mm. He'd had a good game, but, Mm. um, but that's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, I, well, how could you explain that to parents? Like, look, I know you want your kid to do well, but that isn't going to help them. (laughs) Look, when parents are willing, I, I was obsessed with the college admissions scandal, however many years mm. ago that was. I mean, I was like weirdly obsessed. I mean, I 
I was reading the court documents and like the testimonials and I was like insane. But to me, that is the manifestation of this issue. I mean, there's another issue at play, which is these parents have these children as accessories to kind of bolster their own image and notion of themselves. And maybe your child could get into Chico State, but that's not good enough for you. So you need them to get into whatever school they cheated to get into. But I don't know why I was so obsessed with it, but as I was reading, because it just seemed so wacky to me that anyone would do this. But if you have raised your child and removed every obstacle at every step along the way, it was just this one tiny extra step then to actually cheat. I mean, mm. there's entitlement involved in all of it. But if you if you were the parent who, when your child in second grade, you're yelling at the teacher for giving your kid a C, and then you're getting them a tutor to help them write their papers in middle school and high school, and then you get a tutor to do the SAT application, like, it's just not a big leap from there. Yeah. I mean, tutors are fine, but like, I don't know. I always said if my kids came home and they were unhappy with a grade and wanted me to talk to the teacher, I said, no, you do it. Mm -hmm. If they didn't want to, I said, then you either have to accept the grade or I, I mean, there's no other solution. I'm not doing it. You have to go do it. When my kids applied to college, I said, tell me when you're ready and I'll pay for the application. Mm -hmm. That's it. Do you feel... Um that you are a different parent in that regard from a uh, pair of children, number one to pair of children, number two. No, I'm pretty the same. Yeah. I mean, look, I have a different partner and so you have sure. different sort of ways of doing things mm -hmm. together. But as far as that, we, my ex-husband and my current husband are not the same, but they do have some similar and we all three of us <laughs> agree on that, mm -hmm. you know, no excessive intervention. You do it yourself. Yeah. Because I would just imagine not being a parent myself, how slippery that slope would be. That's what right? I'm saying like, with like the college admissions. About, right? I think like, it's really easy to see how it happens. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember a boss at Levi's talking to me about my kids. Who, we were sort of getting ready for the first one to apply to college. And he was like, so do you have like a bunch of tutors for your kids? And have you hired a college admissions <laughs> advocate? I was like, a what? Mm. I don't even know what you're talking about. And he was like, well... But how your kids do good in school, I mean, how they do well. I'm like, yeah, they right. do their homework. They work really hard. Uh, but it was sort of confounding to him that I didn't have this team of people helping them. Right. I Yeah, that's. That the fucked up part, though, is when you do that, the kid, at, this is where entitled, the kid thinks when they got the B plus or the A or got into USC, they mm. think they did that. Right. Well, yeah, because kids are inherently self-centered also. So you can remember being a child and feeling like you were your whole world was about was you. the only world, right? So it would be difficult to imagine that there could have been other factors at play. Like your parents right. grease the palms of the yeah, admissions and then, office. And then that's the real, I think that's where it's sort of like that same resilience momentum we were talking about before. Your, it's a self-esteem momentum. You think you're way up here based on all of these personal accomplishments when in reality it was the palm greasing. And then the world gets undercut but so even, aggressively but that even it becomes. Because some of those kids knew. Mm, Most okay. of them didn't. But there were some. It's ridiculous how much I know about each of <laughs> yeah. these kids. Some of them actually knew or figured it out in the process. Mm. I think the impact is kind of a so what? Well, I deserved that. Yeah. Or that could be. I mean, mm. for some children, I think it was devastating because they were like, why wasn't I good enough? I wanted to go to this other place. That mm. wasn't good enough for you. Why didn't you accept me as I am? And that to me is heartbreaking and sad. Well, and that's, but I, and I think this goes back to this idea of if you, have never trained your ability to recover from hardship. If you do in fact go through this kind of fantasy land of I'm really accomplished and I have a 4.23 GPA and now I'm off to this college. And then you get into the real world and you realize like, Oh, it was kind of a sham. Nobody cares. But for those kids, the ones I'm talking about, which mm -hmm. are the kids of the, some of the people I worked with, I mean, mm -hmm. actually, one of the people arrested in the college admission scandal was somebody I worked with for 10 years. So, I mean, quite literally, mm. some of the people I worked with, these very entitled, wealthy people in Marin, they keep paying. 
They pay for someone to write the the kids' papers in college. Mm. There's parents, I saw a study, they, once your child starts working, they call the boss and ask about the review and why didn't, it's it's not an insignificant number. It's like 12%. I mean, this never happened to me as a matter of thank God. Yeah, yeah. But they just keep doing it. Right. That's, uh, this is a a grand statement, but that's so un-American in that having, lived in some Mediterranean countries where the ossification of the class system is a little aggressive, like Greece. The Greeks are, it's hard to work your way up from the bottom in Greece because a lot of it's grift and payments and you got to know somebody. And I think that's what is depressing to me about all of this is that it does actually kind of work. And that's what leads to economies and countries that don't innovate and and where inequalities are kind of stuck in a certain spot. So I think like it makes me really sad, which is not a profound way to say that, uh, to see this happening because that's part of what America is built on is this idea of a meritocracy where it doesn't matter who your parents are, et cetera. So it, it is definitively un-American and I've seen how badly it can go in other countries. The issue right? is they don't even know they're doing it. Mm. The parents, because it's so utterly normalized in their class. Yeah. It's a, what? Everybody does it. I mean, Mm. another person I know who was implicated in, or I know through someone else in the college admission scandal, that's what he said. What? It's not even wrong. Everybody was doing it. If everyone in your little enclave in Marin County is doing this, it doesn't seem wrong anymore. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's when it's really just gross. Yeah. And you can pull back and can you get them to see it or are they just ashamed they got caught? (laughs) Right. I don't know. Probably the latter. But can I tie it to current events or state affairs? Because on the other hand, it was making me crazy as we went through COVID and school closures that the response from a lot of people who were pro-lockdown, pro-closure, et cetera, was, yeah, 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 kids are resilient. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. They have enough barriers if you let them be, normal barriers. Right. Normal. Some some kids have really, really big, tough ones. Some kids, they're less difficult, but they can still learn resilience. They didn't make the basketball team or whatever. You know, other mm-hmm. kids, it's much, much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, low-income children, maybe they don't have two parents in the home. Maybe they don't have one great parent in the home, no great parents. But the – loneliness and isolation. And I know we want to talk about an article that I sent you earlier. That is not teaching kids resilience. Mm. That is instilling hopelessness. And I think as a kid, cause you're so, so you are, you're in the now and you're, you know, when you have no idea when that will end and when you're relegated to your room and the screen and your whole life and the structure of your life is taken away with no end point, that can just be indefinitely extended. I mean, the hopelessness is real. Yeah. That is not how you teach a kid resilience. I think that comes back to something that you mentioned earlier, which is that these are some parents who are really egotistical and aren't actually thinking about what's best for their children as much as they're thinking about what's best for them. I think a lot of that, well, kids are resilient mentality came from the parents are actively scared. Like baseline, they're they are scared of COVID for better or worse, right or wrong. They're scared for their own sake, and they start making up justifications for why their behavior makes sense on behalf of their children. Well, it doesn't matter if we mask kids or keep them out of school because kids are really resilient. But that's really a cover for their own fears. In the same way that you were saying, like they're not actually thinking about what's best for the child. They're thinking about, well, it would sound really great if I could say my kid got into USC versus Chico state. I'm not dissing cases. Chico state. I know kids that go there. <laughs> I have a friend who went to Chico state. I know a few kids. It was great. And it's probably harder to way harder to get into than Iowa state. Um, <laughs> so this does serve as a nice little segue into uh, our second segment, which is um, a little current events related. Um, I'm going to have you read it this time because I read last time. I feel like my voice uh, gets enough play. So this is from a piece that you sent me, which I appreciated. Yes, by senator, congressman. Yeah. 
let's say congressman. I that think, way it, I think it's he's a, a junior senator. Okay. Chris Murphy. Right. I'm sorry, Murphy, if I got it <laughs> your title wrong. I think he's a senator from Connecticut. That feels correct. So he wrote a piece for the Bulwark on this sort of epidemic of loneliness, and he makes a recommendation, which I take issue with. But um, here's a quote from the piece. Digital communication cannot replace the value of in-person experience. Evidence from psychology, including brain scans, shows that we respond differently to in-person encounters than we do to those that are online. Staying in touch with friends and relatives electronically is better than losing touch altogether, but when interactions on Facebook replace in-person experiences with neighbors and local friends, it can actually drive up feelings of loneliness. Further, the use of social media, which once seemed to promise an antidote to loneliness, can create resentments and further breed feelings of isolation. I'm going to end there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Duh. That's what we told you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's one of the things that was so disappointing early in COVID to me, especially as somebody who ran a community. Right. So my job in L.A. was to run a nonprofit writers group that had 155 members. And I had seen over the course of six years how much work and how hard it was to knit that community together. And additionally, the benefits that people got from it, that people would come in not sure of what they were getting into, a little shy, um, a little intimidated by writing, oftentimes having gone through some life change. We had a lot of people who had just moved to LA or had gone through a divorce or who had retired and they found this kind of magical group and it takes a long time to build that and it does not take very long to, to destroy, destroy it. it. And I think that was, if, if I have any skill set, it would be paying attention to how people feel in a group and so seeing that and understanding that it's way more complicated than people realize and then to just have people say, no, no, we can outsource and segment this was, again, kind of crazy making because I was like, I don't think that's right. Well, and from a parent's perspective, we've been told by our pediatricians, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, you need to manage their screen time, mm -hmm. which we all sort of knew anyway, right? You're not no more than a half hour a day. And suddenly we're told 9, 10, 11 hours a day is fine. It's fine. Right. It's fine. Just, you know, do your eight hours of school and then do your whatever social media. Stay in touch. Do a zoom birthday party do zoom graduation mm -hmm. and you mom you can do a zoom cocktail happy hour everybody zoom 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 and kids TikTok and stitch and twitch and right. whatever else they do <laughs> stitch and twitch and TikTok stitch fix. and do all the stuff and then when the kids when their brains were affected and they were lonely and desperate then our their loneliness, our loneliness, was literally weaponized against us mm. to say, you are a selfish piece of shit if you feel this way. Mm -hmm. I will never not be angry about that. And so the piece ends with a recommendation, mm -hmm. as you know, because you read it, saying government intervention is basically the ticket to solving this alienation, loneliness you know, the mental health impacts we're all feeling. And to be clear, I think the upfront was good. These things were starting to happen. Communities were fraying before COVID. But to it cannot be overstated how much that was accelerated mm -hmm. during during lockdown. But he, he's very clear up front that it's been happening, that community centers, all of this in these sort of rural areas, none of this happens anymore. Mm -hmm. But no thank you. <laughs> to the is, government being to involved. The, you yeah. did this. Right. You did this. I do not want any help remedying it. Mm -hmm. And when I say you did this, I'm not even just talking about lockdowns, although obviously that was a huge piece of it. You forced kids onto Zoom school. You didn't let them do sports. They've now gained, you know, 30% <laughs> BMI or whatever it is. But even before that, letting the social media companies just run wild and mine our kids' data and get them addicted to Instagram. And mm -hmm. because that, in my mind, was a different kind of collusion almost with tech. Because I think that's what we're seeing through mm -hmm. the Twitter files, et cetera, is there is this unholy alliance between government and big tech. Mm -hmm. 
just stay out of my shit. Like I don't let me decide what I, how I spend my time. Let me help my kids figure out a productive way to spend their time. Don't come in and tell me I can't leave my house or I have to leave my house or like you just break it. Yeah. Leave us alone. That's so as you're talking about this, the the one thing that comes to mind for me is that my father uh, has a PhD in child psychology and his doctoral thesis was on the effects of television on children. And so my dad was doing postdoc work at Stanford, actually. That's why I was born in Menlo Park. Um, and his the conclusion was, of course, it's not good. But my dad was really involved in the sort of Fred Rogers, Sesame Street world because this was the early 70s and some of the late 60s where there was a lot of um, talk about how could PBS create television for children that is pro-social. So a lot of my dad's work was, we know that TV is not great for kids, but does Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers or the electric company actually do some good? And the answer was generally yes. I mean, it, too many hours is not good, but there's right. some value in Mr. Rogers, you know, talking you through relationships or whatever else. So I have, I guess, throughout my life also been permissive is maybe the wrong patient with government because I was raised in a household, right? Where we were not allowed to watch much television, but what television we were allowed was generally pro-social. And so I tended to think that the government had my best interest in mind. And so it has been a real awakening in these last 10 years where I'm starting to, I guess, have a lot of questions about that. And I think has been unsettling because I was raised in a household that there was some, you know, it was, it was a kind of joint program between say Stanford and PBS to figure out like what's actually good for kids. And so I assumed that that's how the world worked. And now it is the case that it's not. <laughs> yeah. It's been very unsettling for me. I mean, I was a left of left of left of center my whole life. I, I don't know if I would have called myself a socialist, but I was definitely pro. Mm-hmm socialist some practices and you know if there was a big problem i thought yeah sure government can help us and they can fix it but i want nothing i mean i guess i'm more and more libertarian every day i want nothing to do with any of the solutions that they have i certainly don't want their help fixing a problem they made mm -hmm. um that is not that is that is not it. We'll take it from here. Thank you. I mean, yeah. I, it, what's the Reagan line? The scariest seven words yeah. the government can say are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. That's now how I feel. Is it Reagan or Bush? It was Reagan. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, it was Reagan. Bush could never come up with something. But like even, that. you know, there's this uh, I, I keep calling it an unholy alliance. It's not just with tech. It's with pharma, too. So when I say they weaponized our loneliness, what was the solution then? Mm -hmm. More social media and more pills for our kids and for ourselves when mm -hmm. that was never the answer at all. So I don't want your help. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I think that's what uh, is it, it's it is this alliance of not just tech and government, but also media where it's kind of just like de rigueur to assume that everyone should be on various medications and that that we should, you know, glorify like it's this is again where we get into this am I the old man on the street? But I guess I am. Fine. So you know there's there's the, there's lawn. this talk now about like how TikTok in China is a very different beast than here in the US. Yeah. And so one of the purposes of stuff that it's not that my dad was working on this, but that people were working on these ideas around what should be allowed on TV, which is a pretty authoritarian. And I'm not necessarily coming out in favor of that, but there was this sense that the government was trying to at least monitor or not, maybe not monitor, that's the wrong word, but like gov put a governor on the sorts of things that kids were seeing, hence movie ratings and all of those things. And now we're at the same time saying like we should suppress information on Twitter, but how dare you say that a kid shouldn't be able to see whatever they want on TikTok? That's a strange, that's again where my brain starts to get broken um, because those are oppositional to one another. Yeah. So we want a libertarian attitude towards the consumption. Like when I go onto Instagram now, all I see is like girls dancing uh, in bikinis, right? In the like discover 
segment. Yeah, I'm just wondering why that's what you get served. I get a lot of gymnastics videos okay, in case well, you're wondering. Yeah. And so. so like so is that good? No, of course it's not good. Um my libertarian side says, well, I should figure out a way to crack the algorithm so I'm not getting served those, but it knows who I am, so it's doing that. Um anyway, I don't know. I guess I think that we're all wrestling with this strange new world that we live in where I can't tell who, which side is who. And also I'm not sure about my own upbringing. Well, and I think the sides are all scrambled at the moment. Mm. And I just, when it comes to my children, mm. I don't want anyone's help. I really, I, I'll ask for your help if I need it. I'll find yeah. a doctor if I need it. My thing with my kids, the younger ones, and 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 did this with the older ones, I want them to love something enough that that's what they want to do with their time, that mm. they don't want to, um, you know, spend it all on their phone. I mean, they, I didn't even let the older ones get phones until high school, um, or they don't want to, you know, get so messed up that you wasted and, you know, start drinking too much in high school because they care about some other thing. I don't care what that thing is, but a thing you want to do. For my older boys, that's art. And mm. they always, since they were very young. For my eight-year-old now, it's, he he loves playing sports. It's and I soccer, just, baby. I, he says, I want more soccer. Fine, more soccer. You can go play. So I mean, I love it because it's just a ball and, you know, the, there's not a lot of equipment. It's not like gymnastics where it requires a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, stuff and specific equipment. And as long as he loves that, it's going to crowd out other stuff. It's going to crowd out the phone. Mm -hmm. It's going to crowd out YouTube videos and TikTok. Although that's the girls seem to like that more. Um, I, I just, I, that's my solution and I want to be the one to make it. And that's yeah. why when I couldn't do that for my kids, because everything was canceled, they weren't allowed to go play sports or have art shows or no. Yeah. Well, and that's, I say this often that it's pretty folly to expect one side or the other of government to help you. It's that there needs to be a reintroduction of culture that helps with these things. And in some cases, culture could be sports, right? Youth sports might be an example of that. Historically, it's been religion for a long time. There was a tension between the government, the individual and religion that kind of kept things a Balance. little sense of checks and balances. And I don't know that it's religion that will come back, but I do have this faith that culture is going to come back and help to regulate some of this because I think people right now are under the assumption that it's either the government or not the government, when in reality there is a third option. I'm just not sure what that will be going forward. Yeah, and I'm not here saying like, look, I want the fire department to come when I call them. I want a police. I'm not defunding any right. police departments. I want to know that when Although, I call the police, they you come. You don't have to add that caveat because I was having this argument with somebody recently and they were like, well, are you saying you don't want a fire department? I'm like, God damn it. That's such an elementary so argument. Stupid. Like, no. of course I want a fire department. I want them to fix and the roads. also, how many fires are there? Like you're using a 1920s analogy. Well, in California, there's, <laughs> yeah, a, there's lot a lot of fires. Of, but like we don't have house fires that are going to destroy Denver. No, That's not there were some of those in California. There's meth fires and right. like weird <laughs> meth labs in the city. We had those every once in a while. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'm not like crazy libertarian where I think people shouldn't even need to have driver's licenses. I mean, like those right. are the wing nuts. I'm, I'm not saying that. But I definitely don't want this Murphy character <laughs> fixing this and problem of my children feeling lonely and isolated. I mean, my children don't feel that way in particular, but let's leave it that way. Like I, right. because, you know, I don't, I don't want it. I don't, I don't trust that they're once they're in there, they're going to muck it up. Yeah. I also, the medications, I know we have to wrap up, like that seems to be the answer to everything now. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's the government's answer, but they endorse it. And yeah. there seems to be sort of regulatory capture from big, uh, you know, these government agencies, the FDA are captured by big pharma. I mean, it's, not to go down the sort of RFK rabbit hole, but- <laughs> You know, it's the FDA who gave OxyContin the non-addictive label. Right. And then high, and then 
Sackler or whatever that company like hired the, per- the FDA guy who gave him the label. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah that all that that. That's that regulatory capture. Dope sick is amazing, and it seems odd that people can't make that connection. I no, think the, it's different. That's what they think. It's different. Anyway, the, the good news to me is that we're gonna run out of money soon, <laughs> as a as a country, and then it's just inevitable that we'll have to snap back where we will have to make hard decisions, and we haven't had to do that basically since the nineties. It's been we've had a this good expansion run. of yeah. government forever, and it is not logical to think that that will that get that continue which gives me hope even though that will mean economic hardship for some of us but, but including we're me. resilient it will also breed resilience right <laughs> yeah. like things have gone too well for too long <laughs> and that's got to turn around um i want to say in conclusion that uh it for my for my conclusion i think that i hope that there might be some value to the listener in our confusion about what's happening, uh, in that I don't know that either Jen or I has an answer for here's exactly where we think. Um, I know that's true for me. You could hear me express that today where a lot of the times I just feel really confused. (laughs) And I think that's true for lots of people. So uh, from my end, I, I am wrestling sometimes with historically needing to be asked for an answer. And right now, in a lot of cases, my answer is, I'm not sure, but let's keep talking about I this stuff. I am always 100% certain and I have all the answers. I'm kidding. Of course. Of course. <laughs> that could be your role, actually. <laughs> to be the person with all the answers. I definitely don't have them anyway. So I hope that uh, that our confusion is of some solace if you are also out there in the world wondering um, if you're crazy. Yeah, you're not. The world's gone, man. 